It's time to join Montana's very own and your voice for agriculture, Talking Ag Lane Nordland, for today's LaneCast. Well, hello, friends. Welcome back to the Agriculture Conversation on the LaneCast. And during the 2018 Montana Stock Growers Association Convention and Trade Show in Billings, Montana, cattle producers were really interested in looking towards the future of the beef market. And, of course, trade comes into that. And they had the opportunity to hear from Mr. Don Close, the Senior Vice President of Animal Protein for Rabo AgriFinance. And Don joins us here today. And, Don, uh, what's it been like traveling across the countryside this uh, fall, talking with producers, getting that question? What, what, what's the cattle market going to be like? It, it's been crazy. Um, you know, the, the, the politics and, and trade issues, obviously, uh, front of mind with everybody. Uh, the, the other topic that we've nonstop questions about is the, the pace of development with all the alternative proteins, the, the cultured products. When will they be on the market? How big a threat are they really? Uh, is the big one certainly the price forecast and, and increased production levels of all species where does that leave us with total protein supply and then the latest development is the the speed of spread of African swine fever in China just what that means both short term and long term you've got the 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 component of that whole situation with swine fever in Eastern Europe, uh, you know, been discovered in Belgium. What does that mean if that gets into uh, into East, uh, Western Europe? And, and that by itself would be a game changer. Well, that's a great way to set up our conversation because so many of these factors are going to in- impact not only the cow-calf producers in Montana, but the entire agriculture sector in the United States and across the world. So we're going to come back with Rabo Agra Finance's Don Close right after these messages. As a Montana Farm Bureau member, you have access to a lot of valuable benefits. Now you can have your savings on the go with the Farm Bureau Member Benefits app. The app will show you where you can use your membership discounts with Granger, Case IH, Choice Hotels, John Deere, and more. Plus, with the app, your membership card is on your phone for easy access. It's free. Download the app today. Simply go to the App Store or Google Play and download the Farm Bureau Benefits app. Montana Farm Bureau. We care for the country. Your National Cattlemen's Beef Association knows there's what benefits cattlemen and there's what doesn't. Trade, the Farm Bill, technology and conservation. The decisions being made in Washington affect the life of each and every cattleman. When it comes to the issues, there's simply no room for gray area. To us, it's as clear as black and white. Visit joinncba.org to learn more. Looking towards the future of the protein sector is our conversation with Don Close, the Senior Vice President of Animal Protein at Rabo AgriFinance. And Don, you've been speaking with cattle producers here in Montana at the Montana Stock Growers Convention for the past few days. And uh, there's a lot of protein across the world. And uh, I I think that's where we really need need to start this conversation. How does this increase in protein not only impact the prices but trade as a whole and uh, our trade situations across the nation or the world, excuse me. We're, we're, we're looking at our, our forecast for U.S. production for 19. We're looking at a, uh, 
a 3% increase in beef production. Uh, we're looking at a 5% increase in pork production and probably a, a 2 2.5% increase in, in broilers. So total supplies of protein, clearly all-time records by species for the year. When we put those together and, and look at per capita consumption on a retail weight basis, we're talking somewhere between 222, 223 pounds per person. That's a lot of meat. You know, a, a, a blessing in all of this is, is the incredible growth, particularly in beef exports that we've had the last handful of years. And yeah, we've seen, we've seen a little bit of slowdown since August with, with the tariffs and, and, and the trade spats going on. But uh, we're still looking for an additional 8% growth rate in U.S. beef exports in 2019. It, it's difficult to put into words just how much support we get from, from that level of exports. And <clears throat> I think a real driver in that is uh, for the U.S., but North America collectively is, is the supplier of quality and ultra high quality product we clearly have a market niche to to build on for the future with the quality of product we're producing today and that of course really uh, a, a lot of producers look at that then they look at the prices they're receiving going through the ring uh, and they say trade is the key of course mm -hmm. we produce the best quality beef in the world here Hands in North down. America. And how, how do we look at China differently now? Um, I Kind of tying it back into this African swine uh, flu that's occurring over there in their pork industries. What, what do producers need to know in terms of how this will impact trade and how protein is distributed across the world? Right. Yeah. Half, of the, half of the world's pork hog numbers are in China. And you get mixed numbers between 433 and 500 million hogs. So it's, it's diff difficult for us to comprehend just the mass of that hog, hog supply. The, the, the announcement of African swine fever in China that was first announced in August, and there's a lot of speculation that the outbreak was actually much earlier than August and, and the numbers more than most likely more substantial but at this point in time they've eradicated in excess of, of 80,000 hogs and, and trying to control the spread of the disease. The, the, first, the first step they took in trying, trying to manage this, the spread of the disease was to radically limit the transportation of both live hogs and pork. Well that caused big problems because where the hogs are produced and where they're processed in the biggest consumption areas are in opposite ends of the country. So that caused pork prices to just implode in the areas with excess supply, but it caused incredible increases in, in pork prices in the large metropolitan areas. So then that and, and then the other problem they were having with the lockdown on transportation in the commercial hog production areas, they simply had, with as, as new pigs were being born and coming on stream, but they weren't clearing the facilities, that's causing a, a mass oversupply and where to go with the hogs. Um, there was a tremendous amount of uh, pirateering or, or bootleg pork going just because of the price, price spreads. 
uh, as a result, China has eased some of the transportation constraints, and then and when they do that, that increases the risk of spread of the disease. So it's a it's a double-edged sword. Now you mentioned, and I, I refer to it as flu. Of course, African swine fever. You were mentioning this is not airborne. This no, is, is by not. contact, yes. and I was very surprised because I, I really didn't understand the uh, the aspects of the disease. But could you describe how this could be more of a long term impact yes. on, on the uh, protein sector? Good, good point. And the it is it's it's a contact spread. It is not a, a you know PERS is our is our only real example case study, and that's an airborne virus, and as a result moves much faster. With this being a contact spread everything's playing in slow motion. So to try to set a timeline of when this will really impact the global market and increase the chances of of really driving U.S. exports, very likely could be deep into the second half of 2019. So, you know, the the first expectation I would have with that was, given the influence of the U.S. futures market, I suspect we'll have a number of false starts with this before we really see the impact. Um, as a result of that, if you take um, the increase in U.S. supplies that ha- is obviously bear- has a bearish, bearish connotation, but the opportunity for not only U.S. but global exports because of, of this China situation, I think the potential volatility in the 2019 market is just going to be extreme. And with that, it's just, it's hard for me to believe that they've only depopulated 80,000 head. But And with that, when half the uh, popula- half the uh, world's pork population is over there, I mean, th- this is, I, I think, what it could be that opportunity for U.S. beef and pork and, and poultry producers, because this is not going to get fixed overnight. No, no, we're, we're looking at a situation that, uh, in all reality, will probably be years in, in unraveling. To put the, to put some kind of perspective around this, you know, the if they were to eradicate five percent of their inventory and in trying to control the disease, that would be an equivalent tonnage of all of U.S. pork exports combined. If they were to eradicate fifteen percent of that inventory, it would be the equivalent of all pork exports globally. And there's a lot of discussion that they could end up eradicating between 25 and 30 percent of that supply. And so that puts demands on all proteins globally like we've never seen before. So let's tie this into the trade negotiations between the U.S. and China. Uh, Is this the golden ticket? Are they going to look to South America? How does the U.S. use this as an advantage in getting more protein? Obviously, we're in Montana. We want more beef going over there. But how how does the U.S., how does the U.S. Trade Representative's Office and and all those other individuals that are are making things happen, how do we use this to our advantage? Well, it's certainly a leverage shifter in, in trade negotiations. I, I think this, I think the, uh, the 90-day truce or the 90-day the suspension before the U.S. puts the additional 25% tariffs in place, I think that was a great opportunity for both sides of the, of the debate to save face. It, it'll, it enables China the opportunity to make some purchases 
of pork and particularly soybeans to get them in a more secure spot. It also gives the you know pr- President Trump and the administration a lot of strong talking points that they can show the U.S. that we are making progress in these negotiations. The one the one real hit pause that I would have with that is is while it obviously improves the U.S. negotiation position, but the real drive if you talk to any of the trade reps out of the U.S. Trade Rep Office, um, you know. The, the real sticking point with them is intellectual property rights, and until they openly address that issue, I just think we'll see short-term ebbs and flows, but that IT is going to be the, the real tripping point to open up those negotiations. Again, it hasn't been very long at all since China reopened access for U.S. beef into its nation. Uh, Because, of course, uh, back in 2003, the case of bovine spongiform encephalopathy. So if the stars align for the uh, cattle industry on this, what impact, how many head of cattle, how many pounds could we be exporting? Well, I think the first thing that needs to be acknowledged with that is when we look at what impact is this having on U.S. proteins, and really, it, at the time of that, uh, that, that aluminum and steel tariff announcement back in August, U.S. W- had backed off, and, and we were only sending 7% of our pork exports to mainland China. If you add Hong Kong into that, it was a total of 11% of our pork exports. So it wasn't a huge, quanti- nearly as large a quantity as it had been years before. You've already said it on the beef front since we, we regained direct access to China in June of 17. There simply had not been enough time to really develop a large volume of trade. And then because of, of bird flu constraints, we weren't sending any U.S. poultry to China. So on the total protein front, that's really been a, a positive thing that has upset from being market disruptive to the U.S. All right, there, there's one component of this that, that needs to be incorporated. If you talk here, a lot of the, the swine experts talk about this disease. If you look at the amount of human travel globally, you know, there's certainly a perspective that this is bullish to incredibly bullish as long as we don't have it in the United States. But the perspective is that it's almost inevitable that we ultimately will have it in the United States. And the day that occurs, all of this bullish talk is suddenly incredibly bearish. So it's a landmine we're going to be walking through with this. Now, uh, this just comes into play, though, with uh, all these protein sectors, how much protein we have out there and the prices. Uh, What are we looking like in 2019, then? What... uh, what, what, what is the cattle market shaping up to be like? What are your, what's the projections from Rabo Agrifinance? We're looking, for, we're looking for some easing in prices. We're not in any way looking for a collapse in prices. Um, you know, I'll start off and I'm talking the feeder cattle outlook. I think with the, uh, the quality, the moisture that they've had and the quality of the wheat crop early, Uh, I think we'll have a surprisingly large number of cattle out on wheat that will all be coming back in March. Uh, So we could see some real price pressure at that time um, down to the end of the 130 level, 3035. 
From there, I, I think we'll absolutely see that normal seasonal rally from that uh, March-May low into an August SEP high, and to see feeder cattle prices back similar to where we're at today, a 50, 55 top on, on feeders uh, late summer. On the uh, on the Fed cattle outlook, I'm I'm trimming some some out of the market and early my first forecast for a Feb April high I was thinking the 122 to 124 level may be as good as it's getting. If you take the strength we've had in the market just in the last couple of weeks and the the seasonal influence there, I probably need to be more open minded. I don't, I don't know that I'm ready to talk 130, but I think we can talk something on top of 125, 126. As we go from there through the summer, looking for a, a very pure seasonal play into August, September lows, and even then, I'm still talking fed cattle prices on top of a dollar. So without any, any real disruptions, yeah, I think we'll see some, you know, just with the, with the additional increase, two, two and a half percent increase in numbers, a 3% increase in, in total tonnage. Yeah, we're going to be a pinch softer, but but not a wreck. And, of course, there's not many packers out there anymore. Uh, what, what's the outlook look at? What, what is their price projections per head and, and down the chain back to the cow-calf guys? I, I had a great conversation with a with a packer recently and, and on that very point, and, and he explained to me that his average hourly wage had increased $3 an hour over the last year as he has just constantly been in a battle to retain employees. If you take their additional cost, I, you know, they're talking uh, kill and fab costs roughly in that $300 area, and that's compared to our, our old standard. We thought that kill and fab costs would be roughly $175, maybe $200. If you, when you factor that in, and a lot of the chatter that we've had of Packers with $300 margins, on an extreme, could they have been there? Sure. But I think we've spent a lot more time in a $150 to $200 ahead margin than we have the $300. You know, we, we've seen no measurable increase in slaughter capacity, nor are we really aware of any talk of building any new slaughter facilities so packer margins are going to stay good for a long time they're they're and you know what i've got no ill will with that whatsoever if you take the the constraints that the packing industry was under through all of those years of short cattle supplies the years they were working minimal hours and paying guaranteed hours the losses they incurred during that period it's their day in the sun and with that, uh, has uh, the expansion of the cattle herd, that, that's always a question folks have been asking the past few years. What, how is that expansion looking? Is it slowing a bit more? Uh, what, what should folks expect? No doubt it's slowing. Uh, I think we're right at the crest of, of this cattle cycle. The, several things with that. Uh, no, absolutely, we're, we're anticipating a modest increase in, in cow numbers and total cattle numbers as the Jan 1 19 inventory. I would give you a 50-50 shot that we could see a, a nominal increase even all the way to 2020, but, but we're really right at the peak of that crest. I think the positives of that is there's, there's certainly views that the, the crest of this cycle could last a little longer than normal. and. 
in in regards to our our production equilibrium models, we think this this when the market does roll over and we and we downsize, the the this this correction will be minimal. Uh, we think that we see a very soft landing, and will hold a cow number very close to that 31 million head mark, and that in turn would I think is is very opportunistic that it gives us a great foundation to start with the next cycle on and enables us to see net growth in inventory as we go through the next expansionary phase. Also, uh, uh, before the show we were early talking, there's a lot of cattle going back and forth between the U.S. and Canada, and the the trucking industry loves that because they have full trucks uh, either way, way they are going. What is maybe the misconception about that situation with cattle going back and forth and actually how it actually maybe benefits those cow-calf producers in, in both uh, that's nations? A, that's a great question. I, I wish I fully understood that one myself. A lot of, you know, we, we've seen a big influx. Canada's had a lot of cattle on feed throughout 18, a lot of, talking a lot of feed yards currently full as, as that seasonal movement of feeder cattle has taken place. We've seen a marked increase in the supply of feeder cattle coming south. That's largely seasonal. The The oddity of this year is we have seen, we, while we don't have a hard number on the number of cattle going north, but with anecdotal evidence, we know there's a, been a sizable supply of feeder cattle from the U.S. to Canada. A big portion of that supply has been Holsteins. As U.S. packers have backed away from harvesting the Holstein, you know, gave gave U.S. cattle feeders two years, 18-month lead time to, hey, don't place them because we're going to stop. That's put those Holstein male calves at a price level that with the currency exchange and the basis strength that they've had in Canada, they can buy those calves and, and hedge them profitably from day one. So it's it's created some very interesting dynamics. Also, the economy has been very, very good uh, over the past few years, uh, but there's always uh, that fear in the back of everyone's mind as a recession, and with that comes interest rates. Uh, what, what are some of those factors out there that uh, economists are looking at? I think that uh, that's a great, great topic. The, you know, my view of the economy, I think it's still incredible. Uh, unemployment, 3.9%. looks like, it, you know, we're starting to see some reports that we might have seen the, the peak in employment demand, but still very, very strong. If you look at that uh, University of Michigan Consumer Confidence Index, right up against 100, both of those indicators still, while still very positive, certainly give implications that this economy may be about as good as it's going to get. When you when you add other factors into that, if you look at uh, one of the one of the things I watch very closely is is the yield curve and the history that we have is when the yield curve inverts that we've had a recession eight of the last eight times the yield curve has inverted. Now the the the, the trick to that is that recession will typically occur six to 18 months after you see that yield curve inversion. So I don't think it's a gloom and doom story by any sense of the word, but I do think there's enough signs showing up that producers need to be more cautious, 
uh, I, you know, encouraging customers, certainly this isn't a time to be over leveraged at all. And for those producers looking to bring family members back into the fold, buy some additional ground, I think it can give you a timetable of, you know, two years, three years out from now that we could really see some opportunities. Well, and tying in the national debt in there as yes. well, interest rates. I mean, that, and that's what it comes down to. There's a lot of farmers and ranchers fearing out there what interest rates could turn into. How, how does that impact Absolutely. those family you know, farms and, and ranchers? In recent weeks, we've had a lot of uh, barbs back and forth between the president and the, uh, the Fed chairman. And, and the Fed's given signals that, We'll see another 25 basis point increase before the end of the year, but with with evidence of easing in the economy, they might hold up. I, I'm really slow to buy into all of those discussions. One of the slides I used last night is you know, the the U.S. public debt is is almost 22 billion dollars or trillion dollars, and the. The, the service requirements of our public debt alone is enough to make interest rates go higher. If you look at any, any history of a pattern of interest rates, we could certainly pause, we could hold up. But once we see a major turn uh, in that, we, it usually lasts a while. Uh, just my own view is it will be slow, but there will be additional hikes in interest rates before this is over. We mentioned at the beginning uh, alternative protein, mm-hmm. and I think you've done a very good job of uh, defining which alternative protein we're talking about. Is the plant-based protein, yes. which pulse crop growers in Montana love because their pulse crops are going into that product, or is it the cultured protein? Yes. And uh, how is that going to change the scape? Why is it important to promote beef raised by ranchers? Uh, what are you seeing on that side of it? I think, in, in short... And all of those products, I think there's way more sizzle than steak. They're not going to go away, but uh, I don't think they're going to be the market disruptor that they're accredited with being. I was in I was in a in a local sports bar in St. Louis a few weeks ago, and they had table tents throughout the restaurant that they were serving Impossible Burgers. Well, I immediately called the manager over and said, you know, you live in the number four cow state in the U.S., and it's insulting to, to cow-calf producers to, to see you serving this product. And, and he gave a good response. He said, well, I have to meet the, the request of my customer, and, and we have customers that want this. So I, then, okay, so how many of them are you selling? And he did say that, you know, when we first offered the product, we had a pretty good flurry of sales of people with trying them. But since that time, volume has really tapered off. I just, I think there's, again, they're not going to go away. They're going to be a part of the marketplace. But I, if anything, I think there's been an overreaction on the influence those products will have. The one other point on that, with the recent uh, agreement between FDA and USDA on the the inspection of those products, the, the, the fact that USDA has the majority share of that inspection will be in charge of the labeling. I think that puts beef producers in a much more positive light 
than if we would have ended up with only FDA inspection. I, I really enjoyed uh, your comments last night. People want to be a part of the food movement, you know, clean protein. And I, I just kind of chuckled at your, your statements about how many different, uh, I guess we could call well, everything's made up of chemicals and whatnot. How many different uh, aspects a burger, a uh, cultured-based uh, uh, protein burger would have in it. Uh, could you explain that a little more, uh, sure. your Michael Pollan statements? Sure. The, you know, I go back to, to Michael Pollan's book, the, the Omnivore's Dilemma, and a couple of the things that he, he, big points of the book were, A, if your grandmother didn't consider it food, you probably shouldn't either. That makes perfect sense to me. I think that's good advice. But the real takeaway from the, you know, one of the real takeaways from the book was never eat anything with more than five ingredients or contains anything that you can't easily pronounce. Beyond Meat has 27 different ingredients, and, and a number of those I cannot pronounce. And so for, for that share of consumers that are, con, you know, how they made that quantum leap from only eating products with no more than five ingredients to endorsing one with 27, that's a, that's a quantum leap for me. You know, another area, and I don't know if you can speak much on this, but I was reading the other day that select cuts may be phasing out a little more. Uh, can, can you talk more on that? Sure. Or? The, the first acknowledgement to make, and, and the, I, I've, I've written about this, uh, the, my column in NCBA magazine for the January issue will be on this very topic. Um, but if you take the the escalation that we have had in the percentage of choice graded beef and and prime graded beef now almost 10 percent and very likely will be as we get on into the spring and summer the improvement in u.s beef quality has been phenomenal and we talk about certainly the last two years just almost insatiable demand that we have had for high quality middle meats and we and we credit that with the strength of the u.s economy and consumer confidence absolutely true but i think it's it's way deeper than that that the first beef quality audit was done in 1991 and we've repeated them roughly every five years so with the messaging that came out of that first beef quality audit we're now 27 years into that improving product quality at the during over that same 27 years our competitive proteins certainly broilers and and the pork sector have continued to focus their energy both on efficiency and low-cost production so a big share of this recovery and growth in beef demand is that separation in, in eating quality between those products where I see that being incredibly positive to the industry is, as this economy slows, so will demand. But I think the surprise to come will be because of this quality separation that we're talking about, beef demand will hold much better than it would have in years past. Now, going off of that, we produce, we talked about earlier, the best beef in the world. People want our beef. 
you. But there's a lot of people, even people in agriculture, that don't understand why we're exporting our beef. Mm-hmm. And then there's that all the flip of the coin there is why are we importing yep. beef from other nations? Uh, economically, uh, for companies, uh, can you break that down a little more from your economic <laughs> that's, standpoint? That's, a that's, big, that's such a you know such an easy question. That's a, yeah, that that's a big topic. Uh, probably the the long running side of that equation and one we've done for years is that if you take the demand for ground beef that we have in the U.S. and you know there there's differing views between economists but we're clearly on top of 50 percent of all beef consumption is ground product you can argue that that could be in a range of 55 to 60 percent if we simply do not have a lean beef supply in the U.S. big enough to generate that quantity of ground beef. We also have this mountainous pile of 50% lean trimmings that's essentially a byproduct of our fed beef production. So we need that outside supply of lean beef to, to blend with our domestic supply of 50s to come up with those 80 and 85% blends. That's going on years and years. When we go to the the export front, clearly, as so much of our whole discussion today is, we have not only in beef, but total protein production in the U.S. is larger than what we can consume domestically. Broiler production year in, year out will average about 18% of production. Pork production will bounce somewhere between 22 and 25 percent of U.S. pork production is exported. Now we're in this range where, you know, beef exports as a percentage of, of production had never exceeded 10 percent until 2017. We're now in a in a 12 to 13 percent of our beef production being exported. That is incredibly good news. But it also puts us in a more volatile marketing environment because of geopolitical issues, just as we're seeing today, global animal health issues, just as we're seeing today. But it it is the world in which we live, and it's no longer just a domestic market. Well, Don, we've been talking just uh, at over a half hour. Doesn't seem like that long, but uh, I, I know you got a lot to do here today. But uh, what, what's what's one message that you have for the cattlemen and women across Montana, the West, and the nation about uh, about the cattle markets, or just you know just some advice you have for them in general? You know the 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 takeaway. I think the the improvement in beef quality that we've talked about certainly would be a centerpiece to that. But it, my real takeaway. Of the, of the 40 plus years that I've been in the business, I have never seen a time that is more interesting and even more as, as opportunistic as we are today just because there are so many moving parts in the market today. It's a much, much bigger topic to cover than it used to be. Well, Don Close, thank you uh, once again for joining us here today. Uh, for more on Rabo AgriFinance, just visit them online, or if you're interested in what they can provide your operation, there is a local Rabo AgriFinance 
expert near you. Just visit them online today. Again, Don Close, he'll be down at the Cattle Industry Convention and Trade Show. That's going to be January 30th through February 1st in New Orleans, Louisiana. Let's go down to New Orleans is their theme. There'll be a lot of talk about the cattle markets, no doubt there. For more information on the 2019 Cattle Industry Convention and NCBA Trade Show, visit ncba.org. Well, Don, thanks for joining us on the Lancast Ag Podcast. You're more than welcome. And that will do it for today's agriculture conversation. For more, visit us online at nordlundcommunications.com and subscribe to the Lanecast on your Apple and Android devices. Thank you for tuning in to the Lanecast with Talkin' Ag, Lane Nordland. For more on Lane, check out his Facebook page, Lane Nordland Ag Broadcaster and nordlandcommunications.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the Lanecast on your Apple or Android devices. We look forward to joining you next time on the Lanecast.